and welcome to City Breaks London, episode 20. This is Marion Jones, and this is City Breaks, London, our eighth city so far. All the history and culture that you would research for yourself if you were going on a visit, if you like to reminisce about visits, if you're just interested in London. And you'd do that if only you had the time. But I hope I'm bringing it to you instead in one easy package. Okay then, so today, the River Thames which really is London. The reason why the very first settlers pitched their camps right in that spot. The reason why, in the 19th and 20th centuries, London was the busiest port in the entire world. Surely no visit to London can be complete without a little look at some part of the Thames. And all of that despite the fact that outside London there's much more of it than there is inside. 250 miles long, it is, rising in Gloucestershire, and going all the way to Gravesend on the Kent coast. But the most important section, I think, or the one that most people know anyway, is the central London bit, let's say from Chelsea to Greenwich, that's 16 miles. And if you travel that way, think how many well-known places you'll go past. On the North Bank alone, that would be Chelsea and Westminster, and then the Embankment, remember the Strand and Fleet Street are just behind you there, on to Blackfriars, the bit where the City of London itself meets the Thames, and then past the Tower, out past the docks, and off to the sea. If you did all that on the South Bank, you'd be going through Lambeth and South Bank, where you could pause and gaze in wonder at the Eye or the National Theatre, past Southwark, where you'll find not just Tate Modern and the Globe, but some quite nautical things too, the Golden Hind, HMS Belfast, and if you make your way a bit further, you'll arrive in Greenwich. And were you to do a similar journey but on the water, think of all the famous bridges you'd pass under. Just name just a few. Westminster Bridge, Waterloo and Blackfriars Bridges, the Millennium Bridge, handy if you want to cross from Tate Modern to St Paul's or back, Southwark Bridge, London Bridge and Tower Bridge. It's absolutely central to any journey through London. And that has been the case for many centuries past. A fact perhaps we tend to forget when we're there with the traffic and the noise and the trappings of the 21st century. But I was reminded about that when I saw a two-word description of the river in perhaps the Middle Ages which described it as the medieval motorway. And that set me picturing all those kings and queens who used the river to travel between Whitehall and Westminster and their various palaces at Hampton Court out to the west and Greenwich Palace out to the east. Think too about centuries of events held on the river, many of them full of pomp and ceremony, royal weddings, coronations, that sort of thing, without of course forgetting the much less happy individuals who were taken by boat up and down the river, let's say to the tower, to be imprisoned or worse, executed. I've found from the past lots of descriptions of people travelling up and down the river and not just royalty. The lawyers, for example, from the Inns of Court could live in that lovely cloistered setting and know that whenever they needed to pop up to Westminster for a court hearing, they could hop on a boat. And then what about all the playgoers in, let's say, Shakespeare's time, most of whom lived and worked on the north banks of the city, but who needed to get across to Bankside to go to the theatre, or watch a cockfight, or visit a bear pit. Tourists, of course, have always crossed the river, and managed to find a description written by a German visitor in the 1580s, no less, describing the rowing boats, which were known as wherries, thoughtfully provided for people like him to cross to the other side. They were, he said, 
charmingly upholstered, and they had embroidered cushions laid against the seats, very comfortable to sit on or lean against. And you can picture him doing just that, leaning back and being rowed across the river by one or possibly two boatmen, to whom he'd pay a fare. I found a description written in 1615 of a waterman, one of those people who rowed you across, a sort of larger-than-life character, who I think could rival any taxi or Uber driver these days. Well, the diarist noted that, quote, he is evermore telling strange news, most of it commonly lies. I got another little picture from 1700, when another foreign visitor, one César de Saussure, who I imagine must have been French, noted that in London there were more than 15,000 boats transporting people and goods up and down and across the river. He claimed to find it quite charming and delightful, but went on to say that actually both the people rowing the boats and the passengers thought nothing of shrieking out to one another across the river, often in colourful language. It is the custom, he wrote, for anyone on the water to call out whatever he pleases to the other occupants of boats, even if it were the king himself, and no one has the right to be shocked. By the 19th century, it wasn't just a case of pootling up and down from A to B. It had become a ginormous and thriving port and business area, river traffic arriving in huge quantities from the sea. What another French visitor, one Gabriel Mouret, writing in 1895, described as the constant passage of steamers, which, as he went on to explain, kept stopping and calling in at wharves and having their cargoes unloaded. There was, he said, a whole people who toil at the unloading of the enormous ships, swarming on the barges, dark figures dimly outlined, moving rhythmically. And then he went on to describe what he called the interminable lines of sheds and warehouses, stretching off into the distance, and the masts of more ships arriving, as he put it, quote, Steam tugs whistle, pant and hurry. Ships with great red sails descend the river towards the sea. A steamer advances majestically. She seems as tall as a five-storied house, and her masts are lost in the mist. It all seemed to make London practically the centre of the world. Certainly the greatest port, open to trade, thriving, because it built ever bigger, ever better boats, and because the city scientists were busy devising compasses and chronometers to aid navigation right around the world. But even as that was going on, other people were standing on, let's say, Westminster Bridge and just drinking in the beauty of the city. Most famously, in 1802, poet William Wordsworth, who thought that really Earth has nothing to show more fair than the city of London. I think he was describing the city as a whole rather than just the Thames, but the Thames certainly gets a mention a bit further on in the poem. The river glideth at his own sweet will, he wrote, and all that mighty heart is lying still. I think everybody knows those lines. You may be less familiar with the lines written, possibly at the same time, by Wordsworth's sister Dorothy, who also seems to have been up there on Westminster Bridge and to have been very taken with how beautiful it was. And when she got home, she sat down and penned the following words. The city, St Paul's, with the river, and a multitude of little boats made a most beautiful sight as we crossed Westminster Bridge. But then there's the other side too, and that's all the danger that lurks in the river, all the people who've lost their lives in it, summed up by Sukhdev Sandhu in his book Night Haunts, where he imagines the fate of all those people who've drowned in the Thames over the centuries. 
The barges on the river, he says, quote, know that if they listen carefully, they will hear the cries of thousands of stricken Londoners sinking into turbulent waters. Elizabethan lightermen, whose boats fell apart. 18th century African slaves, jumping overboard to avoid being deported back to plantation servitude. The 600 passengers who drowned in 1878 when the paddle steamer Princess Alice collided with another ship at Galleon's Reach. The victims of the Marchioness disaster in 1989. I found a little diary entry written in 1579 by John Dee, who saw six people drowning when they were being rowed out to a ferry at Kew, and this is what he considered happened. It was, he said, by the negligence of the ferryman, overwhelming the boat upon the rope, set there to help, by reason of the vehement and high waters. The accident of the Princess Alice, a boat named after Queen Victoria's, I think it was third daughter, was the worst in history on the Thames, when over 600 people drowned. It was a pleasure boat, and it collided with a merchant steamer somewhere near Woolwich. Then, for most of the centuries that London stood on the Thames, there's been the ever-present danger of flooding. Since the building of the Thames barrier, that's been much less of a problem. But if you go on a boat trip down the river, you might find that a guide points something out to you at the embankment, which is a reminder that the danger of flooding was ever-present for most of London's life. It's actually a set of lion heads on the embankment walls. They're decorative, but they're useful too, because they've got mooring rings through their mouths so that boats can be tied up. And what the guide will tell you is that before the days of the Thames Barrier, river police were always told to check the water level there, because if it came up as far as the mooring rings, which the lions had in their mouth, then the danger of flooding was very near. Or, as Londoners used to put it, when the lions drink, London is in danger. Here, for example, is a diary entry from 1928, where William Ralph is writing about exactly that problem, flooding. It was, he said, due to high spring tide and already swollen river. Fourteen people were drowned, and the basement of the Tate Gallery, containing drawings by Turner and other matters, was submerged. The water swept over the embankment and invaded the Houses of Parliament. But, of course, there have also been one or two occasions when the Thames was a lifesaver, most notably in the year 1666, during the Great Fire of London, when Londoners ran in great numbers to the Thames to escape the flames. Some escaped to somewhere safer down the river, others used the water to fill up buckets in the vain hope that they might be able to quench the flames. In reality, it took four days to bring the fire under control, but there are diary entries by people recalling the sight of the king himself, Charles II, and his brother James, standing on the riverbank, directing operations and hauling out water themselves. It's said that they were there from five o'clock in the morning right up until midnight, and one Londoner is said to have remarked that if only the Lord Mayor had done as much, as he put it, the city might actually have been saved. There are so many moments of history that have played out on the river. It's no accident that both Westminster and the City of London are on the river, which then became, of course, the main way of transport between the two. Right at the end of the 14th century, another use was made of the river, and it has to do with the story of Dick Whittington, he who was three times Lord Mayor of London. The real Dick Whittington made an absolute pile of money, and when he left it, in his will, 
he stipulated that some of it at least should be used to build what became known as Whittington's Longhouse, basically a toilet over the Thames. For all those people who had no such facilities at home, I think that was probably most people at that time. The historian Robert Lacey writes about this in his book, Tales of English History, and describes it as, quote, a monster public lavatory which contained 128 seats, half for men and half for women, in two very long rows with no partitions and no privacy. It overhung a gully near modern Cannon Street and was flushed by the tide. I'm afraid the idea of human waste in the river was a bit of a thing for centuries. There are lots and lots of historical sources from Tudor times talking about the various monarchs from that period enjoying the river. Henry VIII, for example, was very big on river pageants, a big spectacle on the river, for example, the one in 1538, when he organised a fight between two boats, one representing himself and his council, and the opposing one representing the Pope and the Cardinals. They, of course, were all dressed in scarlet costumes, and a mock battle was staged between the two teams of people, each balanced on their own boats, until one lot turfed the other into the water. I'm sure you can imagine that on that occasion, it was only politic for the Pope and the Cardinals to be the losers. I think I talked about Anne Boleyn's ostentatious boat trip up the Thames from Greenwich to Westminster for her coronation, and we know too that Henry used to use a boat frequently to get to Chelsea, where his friend Thomas More lived. His daughter Elizabeth is said to have travelled on the river on the day of her coronation and the day of her funeral, and, of course, on many days in between. One day in 1559, for example, she went from Westminster to the Tower of London with the Lord Mayor and all the aldermen, all of them in barges. A colourful sight, all their various brightly coloured banners fluttering in the breeze, and musical instruments playing a pleasant melody, as a bystander put it, in a most sweet and heavenly manner. So that was some kind of ceremonial occasion, but Queen Elizabeth used to go out on the river just for fun too. I found a description of how, quote, After supper, the Queen's Grace rode up and down the Thames, and a hundred boats about her grace, with trumpets and drums and flutes and guns and squibs, hurling on high to and fro till ten at night, all the waterside with a million people looking on. She had her own personal barge, a beautifully painted and gilded boat with, wait for it, glass windows, quite unusual in those days, and which for special occasions was decorated with, quote, garlands of artificial flowers and a canopy of green sarsenet, that's thin silk, embroidered with branches of eglantine and blossoms of gold. In the 17th century, when Charles II came back to retake the throne, the restoration, he arrived in London by boat, disembarking near the Strand, and the day before his coronation, there was, yes, a river pageant. The day afterwards, there were fireworks in celebration, held on the river. On the day in 1662, when his new wife, Catherine of Braganza, arrived in London, a pageant was held on the river to celebrate. John Evelyn, the diarist, was there, and he wrote all about it. Lots of boats, he said, dressed and adorned with all imaginable pomp. The Queen travelled from Hampton Court to Whitehall for her first arrival at the seat of power. Quote, His Majesty and the Queen came in an antique-shaped open vessel, covered with a state or canopy of cloth of gold, made in form of a cupola, supported with high Corinthian pillars, 
wreathed with flowers, festoons and garlands. Really no expense spared. Not many years after that, in 1689, William III was invited over from Holland to be our king. It was thought a good idea to see off the very Catholic James II and replace him with William, who was a Protestant. William arrived by boat, in Devon in fact, not up the river, but it was down the river that James fled when he heard that his rival was coming. He hopped into a boat, down the Thames, off to the coast and away. In the 20th century, the river played a rather grim role in World War II because it was used by German planes to navigate their way into central London. Fly up the Thames from the coast and you will get there, whatever the blackout. In 1965, a funeral was held for Sir Winston Churchill. The service was held at St Paul's Cathedral, but the river played an important part later in the day. Churchill's coffin was taken to the Tower of London and loaded onto a launch so that it could be taken up the river to Waterloo for a train to Oxfordshire where he was going to be buried. Silent crowds lined the river, a flight of 16 aircraft swooped overhead, and Boris Johnson, who wrote a book called Life of London, explained what happened next. Quote, in perhaps the most touching gesture of all, the cranes dipped in salute as he went through the Pool of London. That's the bit from Tower Bridge to London Bridge, roughly speaking. London's goodbye to the great man took place, yes, of course, in the cathedral, but also along the River Thames. You can notice too that when it came to marking the new millennium, no fewer than three new London landmarks were built, all of them along the river, or actually in one case across it. So, the London Eye, the Millennium Bridge and the Millennium Dome, better known today as the O2 or perhaps just the O. So the Thames has played its role in the history of London from its first founding right through to the dawn of the 21st century. I soon discovered that if you look up anything about the history of the Thames over the centuries, there are certain things that keep coming up, one of which being the idea of a great frost. Times when the whole river froze over, which must have caused 101 problems. But if you read the write-ups, they tend to talk much more about the positive, about the idea of the river becoming a sort of playground for Londoners who could all come out to play and skid and skate about, set up cooking fires perhaps, create the atmosphere of a winter festival. It happened quite a number of times. In 1537, for example, King Henry VIII and Queen Jane Seymour arrived at Greenwich Palace on horseback, having travelled along the river with all their courtiers. A frost fair was held in the winter of 1564. All sorts of things going on, archery contests, dancing, games of football. It sounds as if everybody had a marvellous time. Oh, except for the watermen, who of course lost their trade until the river unfroze and they were needed to ferry people back and forth again. Again in 1608, frozen over. I know this because I found a letter written by one John Chamberlain which described the Archbishop of Canterbury crossing the river from Lambeth Palace on one side to Westminster on the other. John Chamberlain seems to have witnessed this himself and while he was there, he also noticed lots of other fun frolics. For example, people burning a gallon of wine, as he put it, on the ice and offering it to all and sundry. Sort of the glue vine of the early 17th century. As ever with the 17th century, John Evelyn has plenty to say. A diary entry he wrote in 1662 describes him trying to get home by water, as he put it, 
and then adding that this was not without exceeding difficulty, the Thames being frozen, great flakes of ice encompassing our boat. And in 1684, it would seem that the Thames was frozen four weeks at a time. On January the 9th, he was on the frozen Thames, the ice apparently being so thick that shops had been set up across it, where people were roasting meat and setting up places to sell their wares, quite, as he put it, as in a town, and with coaches, carts and horses passing over it. By the 24th of January, so fully two weeks later, he was writing that the frost is continuing more and more severe, and people had found all sorts of ways to enjoy themselves, as he put it, with sleds, sliding with skates, a bull-baiting, horse and coach races, puppet plays. Food and alcohol were being served. It was, he said, a, quote, bacchanalian triumph, or carnival on the water. And as late as February the 8th, so a full month after the Thames first froze, he's writing that the thaw had set in, but ye Thames still frozen. So much then for the great frost. There's also the great stink, or as Boris Johnson put it in his book about London, an olfactory onslaught. The problem being the dumping of London's waste and sewage into the Thames. As early as the 14th century, Edward III was banning butchers from dumping animal waste into the river, complaining about the fumes and abominable stenches. But things continued. I think people went out after dark and did whatever they had to. And by the 1850s, there were 250 tonnes of human sewage being dumped in the river on a daily basis. Someone wrote to the Times about it, describing what was being projected into the river, as he put it, as, quote, decomposed fermenting sewage, hissing like soda water, with baneful gases. This came to a crisis point in 1858, known as the Great Stink. It was a very hot summer that year, which made things even worse, and the smell around Westminster was so bad that MPs were fleeing from London. And, as we've come to learn over the centuries, that is the point at which something finally gets done. Disraeli was on the case. And very soon afterwards, in the 1860s, London's new sewers were complete. Gigantic pipelines were built, running alongside the River Thames, so that whatever was collected all over London could be fed into them and taken away. Lovely wide roads were built on top, Victoria Embankment, Albert Embankment, Chelsea Embankment. It truly was an amazing feat of engineering, all masterminded by one Joseph Bazalgette, a statue of whom, by the way, you could see on the embankment today. I think the worst of the smells disappeared. The whole problem, however, wasn't solved. The Industrial Revolution saw to that. And nearly a century later, in 1957, the Natural History Museum was asked whether they would conduct a survey and come up with a conclusion. This they did. The Thames, they declared, is biologically dead. There is not enough oxygen in it, and that's why there are no fish. That prompted the most massive clean-up campaign, which certainly wasn't a quick task, but it has been a successful one. Just a few years ago, the Thames was declared to be the cleanest river flowing through a large city. Actually, the wording I read said it was considered to be, so it may be that other people in a different large city have other ideas. Anyway, it's massively better than it was. It's believed nowadays to be home to some 125 species of fish and a whole host of other living creatures. Lots of different invertebrates, for example, 
and it's not unknown for seals and porpoises to make their way up the Thames occasionally and find themselves in London. I must just add that the great but in all of this is the fact that it still has very high levels of microplastics. Presumably, people are on the case of that. Something else that seems to be in all the history books is the idea of whales making it to London, up the Thames. And, unlikely as it sounds, this is in fact possible and does sometimes happen. A reminder that the river, certainly in the lower areas, is tidal. Back to John Evelyn, he was at Greenwich one day in 1658 and he spotted a whale. Unfortunately, by the time he came across the scene, what was actually happening was that people were killing it with a harping iron. But he has left us a description. 58 feet long, he says, 16 feet high, and, quote, black-skinned like coach leather, very small eyes, a great tail, two small fins, and a mouth so wide that diverse men might have stood up in it. A happier and much more recent tale comes from 2018 to 19, when a beluga whale, soon christened Benny by the public or possibly the media, was also sighted on a number of occasions in various parts of the river, after which it disappeared, so we have to hope that he made it back to the sea. And you might remember more recently, 2021, a calf minka whale found itself stranded in very shallow water and became so distressed that eventually it had to be put down by vets. Another set of tales which I kept coming across was that of the mudlarks, people, particularly in Victorian times, who used to wade into the river thigh-deep in search of anything that they might pick up off the riverbed, scavenge if you like, so that they could sell it. Lumps of coal, a piece of iron, anything that could be reused. Having just discussed the state of the river in the 19th century, It's truly horrific to imagine people wading through that and bending down under the surface to see what they could find. And I did come across a diary entry written in 1861, so at the height of the times when sewage was everywhere in the river. The author is one Arthur Munby, and he describes watching what he calls female mudlarks in the Thames. It was down near Blackfriars Bridge, and what he saw was, quote, several female mudlarks wading barefoot and thigh-deep, under the barges, through the frozen, ice-covered mud. She waded through mire and water, among dead cats and broken crockery, towards the river, until, stooping almost double, she disappeared in the mud and darkness under the side of a coal barge. But I do think it would be much nicer to end with some descriptions of people having fun on the river. And here's a great one, written in 1172 by one William Fitzstephen. He describes people making sport with tournaments on the river. There's a lot of wobbly rowing about and standing upright on a boat, trying to break a shield with a lance and hoping you don't fall in. Plenty of people sliding along the ice, or finding a great lump of ice to sit on and then getting their friends to drag them along on it. Sometimes, he says, they go too fast and all fall flat on their faces. Others, he says, quote, more skilled in ice sports, fit the shin bones of beasts to their feet, lashing them to their ankles, and use an iron-shod pole to propel themselves, pushing against the ice. They are borne along as swiftly as a bird in flight. And meanwhile, since all this exercise is going to make you very hungry, on the riverbank, a public cook shop, where, quote, daily you can find the seasonal foods, dishes roast, fried and boiled, fish of every size, coarse meat for the poor and delicate for the rich, such as venison and various kinds of birds. 
And he goes on to explain that if you're having guests and don't want to buy food and get your servants to cook it, then you can hasten to the riverbank, as he puts it, and buy it all. For there they have, as he puts it, every sort of delicacy. Boat racing on the Thames has been going on an awful lot longer than you might realise. I found a description of a race from Blackfriars Bridge to Putney and back, written in 1795, by the Reverend William McRitchie, who was on a tour through Great Britain, as the title of his book tells us. This seems to have been an annual event, for which there was, quote, a vast concourse of people on the bridge and on each side of the river, vast number of boats and barges, with splendid company on board. He claims to have seen a thousand barges, all part of the spectacle, and to have heard guns being fired as the winning boat neared the finishing line. And he finishes his piece by writing that, quote, Even in the most luxurious times of ancient Rome, never sure could old Father Tiber boast a nobler spectacle. The first Thames Regatta was held in 1843 at Putney, and in 1846 came the first Oxford versus Cambridge boat race. Even then it was set to be an annual event, and still today a spectacle that attracts crowds, television cameras, etc. Surely today any visitor to London makes a point of seeing something of the Thames. There are all kinds of things on offer to help you make the most of it. Most obviously, the classic boat trip. Surely you must if you haven't done it before. Or what about investigating the Thames Path? on which you can walk from one side of London to the other. There's a website, all about the Thames Path, from which you can learn that it stretches from the, quote, lost floodplains of Richmond to the Dickensian eastern marshes. Many of London's main sites are on it, centrally then, for example, the Houses of Parliament, Tower Bridge, and so on, but also a little bit further out, Hampton Court Palace, Kew Gardens, and all sorts of other goodies. You might prefer to just wander a much, much smaller section, bang in the centre. Why not go to the South Bank? Think street performers, theatres and concert halls, the London Eye. If museums or places to visit are more your thing, then there's the London Docklands Museum, where you can learn all about the river. In Southwark, there are two different ships you can visit. The Golden Hind, well, an exact replica of, in fact. So the galleon in which Sir Francis Drake sailed round the world along, apparently, with about 80 crew members. If you go to visit, do pause to wonder where they all fitted in. And just along the river a tiny bit then, HMS Belfast as well, a World War II Royal Navy ship, where you can explore all the decks and the cabins and the shell room. Further east again, there's plenty of maritime goodies in Greenwich, which I talked about in episode 18, so just as a quick reminder, you could visit the Cutty Sark, go to the National Maritime Museum, And my top tip, if you just want to sit at a cafe and enjoy the sight of the river, I would sneak round the back of Somerset House, where they have a lovely terrace cafe overlooking the river. Of all the things I read about the River Thames in researching the episode, I think my favourite, the one that seemed to sum up the idea that it's been the lifeblood of London for over 2,000 years, is the description I saw, which encapsulated all of that in two words and said the Thames is liquid history. I hope you've enjoyed these snippets that I've unearthed. Perhaps feel a little better informed, set on making sure you do something on the Thames when you next go to London. And so I'm going to round off the episode right there and just mention that next week we're going actually to one of the big London hitters set right on the Thames, and that's the Palace of Hampton Court. 
I hope you'll be able to join me for that. But for the moment, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>